So for those of you watching online right now from coast to coast and across the fruited plains, uh, my name is Joe. Welcome to Lynchburg City Church. I'm the pastor here. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. And with that, I would invite you guys to pray uh, with me right now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. What a glorious truth indeed. We love you because you first loved us. Wow. I pray that those words that we've maybe heard many times before would really hit home today. We love you because you first loved us. Lord, we think of uh, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation. So many of those guys, they, they just don't know you, Jesus. Lord, we think of President Biden right now. We pray for a special mercy and grace upon him. I pray that you protect him, his, his body, his mind, his mental faculties, that you'd help him make good and wise decisions. And I also pray, Lord, that you would save him, Jesus. For Vladimir Putin, I pray that you'd confuse and frustrate his plans. I pray you'd save him. Lord, for the persecuted church, for the Christians, Lord, right now in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Eritrea, in Nigeria, for Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram right now, for Pastor Youssef imprisoned in Iran, for Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China, for the church at large, Lord, for the church in Russia and Ukraine, I pray that it would be a shining city beacon light on a hill as we remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them, please, God, help them. Please, God, help them. And today I pray that you'd help us. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life as I preach. I pray you'd help me to say only what you want me to say. If there's something that you don't want me to say today that I'm prepared to say, don't let me say it. If there's something, Lord, whether I need to say it or I'm not supposed to say it, I, I pray you just guard my words, keep me from error, and help us, help us, those here, those watching, help us to just hear from you, Lord. We need you, God. We always do. We pray this in your name, amen. All right. Part 13, part 13. I'm glad you guys are here today, kind of the last calm before we double or triple in size um, with the college students coming back, many of you guys are back, glad you're here, but we are in part 13, we've been going through John's gospel, um, kind of hit and miss over the summer, I've been gone uh, a lot uh, for, with the army, and so um, we're picking up, we, we did, uh, we finished chapter 4 last week, we're going to be in chapter 5 uh, this week, we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, if you're new here, we love expository preaching, because it's awesome, we're just going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, just tell the Bible story, and uh, talk about it, so we're in chapter 5, verse 1, part 13, let's get it going right now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, of course, anytime you go to Jerusalem, you always go up, regardless of the geography. You leave Jerusalem, you're going down. Doesn't matter. That's just how it works. You go to Jerusalem, you're going which way? You're going, you're going, you leave Jerusalem, you're going which way? There you go. You got it. And uh, it happens during a feast. And, and John, the apostle who's writing this, 
In his narratives, he loves to tie in feast. He does this with Passover. He does this with Tabernacle. He does this with dedication. He does this in 2.13, 6.4, 7.2, and 11.55. And for John, he uses this as a reference for a historical marker to explain, okay, Jesus in Jerusalem. Why is he in Jerusalem? Well, it's one of the feasts. Oh, okay, because if you're a Jew, it's very common. You'd go to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And so it says in verse 2, now, there is at Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has a five-roof colonnade. And I thought what was interesting about verse 2, the mention of the Sheep Gate, some commentators believe, because of John's reference here, that this gospel was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by General Titus and the Romans, um, because he makes the reference. And if he wouldn't have made it afterwards, because it would have been destroyed. And so for dating purposes, a lot of people like verse 2, and they think it's really significant. It could be. That is certainly a possibility. However, John also frequently uses the present tense to refer to past events. But if John is referring to the same thing, the Sheep Gate, as Nehemiah had in mind, this little opening in the north wall of the city, now located today near the Church of St. Anne, then he had in mind something that would have looked similar to this. This is a sketch taken from the ESV study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, I love the ESV. It's one of my favorites. Um, but this is what people believe that Jerusalem would have looked like in the time of Jesus. The temple's going to be on the right side in the northeast corner, and we'll zoom in one. We'll take it, okay? And where the sheep gate is, we'll zoom in even one more time, is right here. And those are the twin pools of Bethesda. And it says in verse 3, keep that up on the screen, Chris, in, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So what would you have is those two twin pools of Bethesda, you would have had tons and tons of people gathered around them. And when you think of a pool, you might think of something maybe smaller, like I was at the pool in Cornerstone yesterday. No, think much bigger. Uh, think like in terms of size of a hockey rink. That helps me, because everyone loves hockey. Uh, You've got a rink that's roughly 200 feet long by 85 feet wide. This, these pools would have been roughly 196 feet long by about 50 feet wide, slightly smaller than an ice rink. But just if it helps you, just two ice rinks in size, two pools, tons of people packed in there. And all these people, they're, they're sick. They've got different disabilities and hardships, and, and they're suffering, and they're going through a lot of really, really difficult things. That's the setup for today. And then we come to verse 4. Dramatic pause, because there is no verse 4. There's no verse 4 in my ESV, English Standard Version Bible. There's no verse 4 in your NIV or in your NASB. Don't panic, okay? Uh, I can explain this, just bear with me. The reason is the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts don't have verse 4. That's, that's why. Not to mention there's more than half a dozen words in verse 4, that are four into John's writings, including three not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And for this reason, most commentators believe what happened is that a later copyist, in attempting to explain, once we get to verse 7, why people are gathered at the pool of Bethesda in the first place, inserted it in. You see, there was this kind of mystical belief that angels would come and they'd stir up the water, and when the water started getting swirled up, if you could be one of the first to jump into the pool, you get healed. That's, that's where verse 4 was most likely inserted by a later copyist to try to explain, once we get to verse 7, the rationale for this. 
And so it says this in verse 5. It says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know how old he is. We just know that he's paralyzed, maybe from the waist down, from the neck down. We're not told. He, he can't walk. It's been 38 years. He could be older. And it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, key word, he knew. Jesus, Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. He said, do you want to be healed? He knows, right? In, in the same way that God knows each and every one of us intimately. Better than we know ourselves. The psalmist would say it like this in Psalm 139 too. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and, and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you, you know it all together. And I don't know about you, I'm really thankful that just as Jesus knows what's troubling this man here in John chapter 5, he knows the troubles that each and every one of us are facing. He knows the troubles and the challenges and the difficulties that we are having and that we're going through at this exact moment. And not only does he know, but as we're about to see, he cares. And he wants to help. And not just with the problems that we're facing, but with the root cause of the problems. He knows. He knows. Jesus chooses to go to this pool. He didn't have to do it. It didn't sneak up on him. He's not like walking through the streets of Jerusalem and being like, oh wait, where are we at? Got turned around. Oh, we're here at the Sheep Gate, the Pool of Bethesda. Oh, I, I guess we kind of just stumbled here. Let's go check that out. That didn't happen. He knows. He chooses to go here. Just as he knows this man and what he's dealing with, he also knows what he's doing. He's going to this pool the same way that he went to Samaria to find the woman at the well. He's going to the pool in the same way that he went to sign-seeking, prophet-dishonoring Galilee to meet with a guy's son who was sick. Because that's what Jesus does. He moves toward the needs we have. Not the comfort towards sinners, not self-righteous who have no need of him. And so here at the end of verse 6, he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Do you? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, we already discussed in commenting on why verse 4 is not in the Bible, or why when it is, there's a little footnote explaining why it's not. Uh, there is this mystical belief going on. Angels come, they stir up the water. If you can be one of the first ones to jump in, you got a chance. And what does he say? I don't have a chance because there's nobody to help me. No one ever wants to help me. Everyone's too busy doing their own thing. And so not only do you have this kind of mystical belief going on, you also have some of these negative beliefs. He apparently has, I think, some of these. And sometimes 
Sometimes when you get really frustrated, it's easy to happen. You're dealing with a sickness for a while. You keep praying. You keep asking God. It doesn't seem like He's answering. You're dealing with different frustrating situations. They don't seem to go away. They're just here. It feels like chronically and constantly. I could certainly at least understand. And so instead of asking for healing, instead of asking for help, he responds like a lot of people do who've been dealing with something hard for a while, and that is he blames others for not helping him. Remember, what was the question back in verse 6? Do you want to be healed? That's, that's what he's asked. Do you want to be healed? And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say yes. Instead, he blames others for not helping him. Did you catch that? Because the reality is this. Not everyone wants to get better. Not everyone wants things to change. Some people are in the place they are. I'm saying some, not everyone, okay? Some people are in the place they are because they want sympathy, because they want charity. For example, not everybody who comes to Lynchburg City Church actually even wants to be here. Not everyone who comes to Lynchburg City Church wants their lives to change. Not everyone who comes here actually wants to grow in their walk with God. Not everyone who comes here actually wants to use the spiritual gifts that God has given them in building up the church, ministering to their brothers and sisters around them. Sometimes, I know this is going to be crazy, people come to meet a significant other. Not here, right? Everywhere. Or they come to network, or they come to get sympathy. And I would argue that that's probably true of just about every church. I call it the Eeyore syndrome. Now, it's not officially a real thing. Then again, it's 2023, so I guess anything's possible. But uh, if I had to describe this feeling, manifestation, like if it was on WebMD, if it was in the DSMN in your counseling class, it would probably be characterized by one of the three following words, terrible, everything, and nothing. And you can probe those by asking these type of questions. You say, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just doing terrible. That's one, right? Well, well what's wrong? Oh, everything, everything. That's two, right? Well, what'd you do this week? Oh, nothing. You ever meet somebody like that? Once again, Jesus asked him, do, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't say yes. And, and the truth is, some people... If they're being honest, they would say, you know what? No. Because I like complaining. Because it's a lot easier to complain than to change. Remember, does this man ask God to heal him? No. Does it say that he has faith? Nope. Does this man come looking for Jesus? No. But rather, what we see is quite the opposite. Jesus pursues this man. Jesus comes to help this man. Jesus comes to heal this man. And so verse 8 I like verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. That's a good line. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Jesus, he, he's not there to dispute the man's poor theology or his misunderstanding of angelology. He just says, dude, get up, man. Take up your mat and walk. And what's interesting, I think it's interesting, in the day and age of the, the Word of Faith movement, we would have had to say and take issue with this guy 
and said, well, this ultimately has something to do with the amount of faith in his life. Like, like if he doesn't get healed, well, it's because of lack of faith. And if he does get healed, it's because he had enough faith. I think one of the cruelest things that we see from the Word of Faith movement is that if you don't get better, it's because you're guilty of sinful unbelief or a lack of faith or some type of negative confession. But the truth is, sometimes people that Jesus heals, sometimes they don't even manifest faith prior to being healed. Like in Matthew 8, 14 to 15, or Matthew 9, 32 to 33, or Matthew 12, 10 to 13, or Matthew 12, 22, or Mark 7, 32, 35, or Mark 8, 22 to 25, or Luke 14, 1 to 4, or Luke 22, 50 to 51, or John 9, 1 to 7, and this man is a prime example. Prime example. And at once, verse 9, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Why is Jesus healing? We're, we're not told. He, he just does. Like out of all the sick people there, Jesus chooses to heal this guy. There wasn't anything special about him. There wasn't anything that made him maybe more deserving than anyone else. He doesn't seek out Jesus. He doesn't have faith in Jesus. He doesn't even say yes when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And I think in many ways it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Or as Romans 8.30 would say, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God predestines us, he calls us, he justifies us, he glorifies us, and it's not because of us. As the scriptures would remind us, we love him because he first loved us. Or as St. Augustine said so many centuries ago, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. And then at the end of verse 9, John mentions that this happened on the Sabbath. Did you catch that? I broke verse 9 up. Now, that day was the Sabbath. This is where, if I had the team or an orchestra up here, we would insert some very dark and ominous music. This is where the, the orcs would start crawling out of the ground. And uh, it's because John is taking us down a very hard path. And that's because the path of ministry is hard. Or as a lesser-known theologian, John Piper, would say, thank you. Conflict in the ministry of Jesus is the furnace where the steel of his identity is forged. Isn't that a good quote? I thought it was a good quote. Conflict in the ministry of Jesus is the furnace where the steel of his identity is forged, end quote. It's a Sabbath. He heals the man. It's going to tick a lot of people off. He doesn't care. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you believe these guys? The guy gets healed, right? Miracle's been done. Can't walk for 38 years. Dude, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. Are you guys for real? Like, is this a joke? I saw a reel on social media the other day 
Shannon Breen was this old reel. She's talking to somebody, and she's like, I just want to make sure I'm not mischaracterizing you. It sounds like you're saying math is racist, and if you say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's racist, and I, do, I want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding you. And she's like, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then in the, and then like in the meme, everyone's just like this in the reel. Like, like, are you for real? The guy can't walk for 38 years. He gets healed, and you guys are mad because he got healed on the Sabbath? You see, uh, in the Old Testament, of course, work is forbidden on the Sabbath, but then the question becomes is, well, what exactly is work? And the assumption is, well, that's your nine-to-five job. That's, you know, your customary uh, form of employment. But what the Jews did over time is they just put layer upon layer upon layer of all these added rules. In fact, 39 rules, to be exact, when it came to the Sabbath. 39 classes of work and categories, according to the, the Mishnah, which the Mishnah is kind of like their John MacArthur commentary that they viewed almost as more important than scriptures itself. And furthermore, the Sabbath obedience became this eschatological end times issue because it was thought, at least minimally, that the coming of Messiah was linked to perfect keeping of the Sabbath. So they had this and developed this unbiblical zeal for all things related to the Sabbath. You've got to obey it perfectly. You've got to obey it perfectly. You have to obey it perfectly because if you don't, Messiah is not going to come. So what do we do? We, we, we add 39 extra layers and rules and categories for this. But he answered them. Here's the man who got healed. Here's his response. The man, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed, he didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Jesus heals this man, and he responds by blaming Jesus. Like, imagine, you can't walk for 38 years, you get healed, and some religious leaders are upset about it, so you blame the guy who just healed you. See, actually, in the Greek, the term self-centered, self-preservation, and loser are actually named after this guy. Probably. Or at least they should be. Because this is just mind-blowing. This is crazy. This is ministry. This is ministry. Ministry is, I help you, and you hurt me. Ministry is, having someone say, oh man, I've so enjoyed uh, you investing and discipling me for this last year, but you know, I'm not really up for afternoon services. I'm not really up for morning services. You know, evening services, that Sunday night football, like it just kind of gets in my way. Ministry is having the conversations where someone says, oh, listen, I really appreciate you taking me under your wing and discipling me, but I've got a girlfriend now, so I've got other priorities to take care of. Or, you know, I've outgrown the church, or I don't get as much out of the sermons, or I don't get as much out of small group. This is ministry. I help you, and then you turn around and hurt me. It's hard. It's tough. It's Jesus' life. And it's what we're called to do. And so, verse 14, afterward, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse, keyword, may happen to you. In verse 14, we learn that this guy's illness 
whatever resulted from him not being able to walk, we learn here that it was the result of a sin issue in his life. We're not told what the sin is. We're just told that there was a sin issue. And I want to be really, really clear, lest none of you misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that everyone who commits a sin is going to get sick or die or have an illness or go through some hardship. But it also doesn't rule it out. Unless you think this is the only example we have David in the Psalms crying out, when, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 38, you have Moses speaking to Israel. In Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, warning them, warning them of, of plagues and chronic sicknesses if they don't obey God. And of course, you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, a passage we're very familiar with that I paraphrase, paraphrase just about every other week. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because of the sin, because of taking communion in an unworthy manner. And Jesus tells the man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You say, nothing worse? Nothing, nothing worse? Like, what would that even be? This, this guy couldn't walk for 38 years. Like, what could be worse than that? Which is why Piper argues that there's good reason to think that Jesus has the final judgment in mind as the something worse. You see, for this man, the main issue isn't health. It's holiness. The main issue for this man isn't health. It's holiness. Jesus heals him to show him he can save him. You see, everyone loves to focus on the compassionate love that Jesus shows people, such as the paralyzed man here in John chapter 5 that he heals. And yet, the greatest kindness that he shows this man is his tough love comments of verse 14 when he says, Dude, if you don't stop sinning, you're going to hit a point of no return. If you don't turn to God, Right now, before it's too late, you're going to perish. For this guy Jesus is talking to, this should be a no-brainer. Trust what Jesus says. Obey what Jesus says. Surrender and place your allegiance in Him. Not to mention, He didn't just do this miracle and heal you. And the answer, it seems super obvious. And yet, as obvious it is for us, looking into the story, it's not always so obvious when it comes to our own lives. God shows us kindness. He blesses us with relationships. And we say, well, God, now that I have a relationship, I don't really need to have as much time for you. He blesses us with a job, and we turn around and we come up with reasons why we're not going to worship God in our giving. Or like the man here in John chapter 5, Jesus heals. We're told, dude, you've got to stop sinning. And despite of how good God has been to us, despite of how trustworthy He has shown Himself, we ignore His kindness and His call. And so verse 15 says the man went away. I kid you not. He went away and then told the Jews that it was Jesus who had, helped, who had healed him. He went away and just ratted on him. And this, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It would seem that once again, even after the second encounter with Jesus 
the man doesn't demonstrate any faith, any gratitude, any thanks. It's shocking, really, when you consider his circumstances for 38 years, and yet he chooses to show loyalty not to Jesus who healed him, but to the Jews who hate him. And yet this happens every day. Jesus shows kindness, Jesus heals, Jesus answers prayers, Jesus sends people to warn others of the wrath to come, and despite all such efforts, many people just choose to spit in his face and ignore his kindness, and like Judas, sell their loyalty to those who hate him for what? But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's this Sabbath theme that continues in these final verses. And it was assumed, of course, that God works on the Sabbath, that God doesn't take any days off. And that's the basis for Jesus' argument. That the same factors that apply to God, he says, they also apply to me, because he's my father and I'm his son. And when Jesus says that, that's the reason that he can heal on the Sabbath? Man, it's all over. It's all over. It's done. Because now he's not just a Sabbath breaker, he's a blasphemer because he's made himself equal with God. But then again, that's the entire point John the Evangelist is trying to make here. That's the point of the whole story. Jesus doesn't do the miracles on the Sabbath so that we can go into a discussion of, okay, what's okay to do on Saturdays and what's not okay to do on Saturdays? He does the miracle to show that he's equal with God. That he is the creator and ruler of the universe. And yet, like the man in the story, for many people today, we don't want to know Jesus. We don't want to obey Jesus. We've got one Lord of our lives, and it's not going to be Jesus. It's going to be us. The man in the story takes this tragic turn away from God. And unfortunately, many people do as well. And I would plead... I would plead with you today, if this is the case for you, to just immediately reverse course so that nothing worse may happen to you. And furthermore, I would exhort you to follow Jesus' example in risking being hurt for the sake of the lost, in risking being betrayed for the sake of the gospel. Because this, this isn't some imaginary story. It's not a made-up story. It's a real story about a real God who sends his only son to real people who aren't looking for him, who don't care about him. They have no allegiance to him. And just like with the man in John chapter 5, his primary goal isn't about the man's health. It's about his holiness, just as it is with us today. And so my prayer today is that his goal will become ours as well. So as the team comes, I'd like to pray for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And I pray, Lord, that if we're following too closely the path of the man in John 5, that we would immediately reverse course and beg your forgiveness. And for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray that we would see what this is about. It's about your desire for us and our holiness that's why you, you even bothered to go back in verse 14 to even have a second conversation with the man. That we would see that, that that's your desire, a greater conformity to what your word says. 
So Lord, I pray that you would forgive us our sins, whatever they may be, and that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. We need you, God. And I thank you so much for saving us and rescuing us and going out of your way to call us and pursue us. Because like the man, there was no reason in and of ourselves for you to do so. Which is just a testimony to your kindness, compassion, and love. We pray this in your name. Amen.